Psalm 127. I picked this psalm strategically for today. This is the first psalm that, that we've studied at least that has had Solomon as its author. Okay, so you, you're probably familiar with Solomon. He was a son of David. He was a man that God blessed with great wisdom and he led in building the temple. Um, this psalm is really split into two sections, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 5. And at first glance, as we uh, see, it might seem like these sections are talking about different things. Okay, we're, gonna, we're talking about building a house, talking about watching a city, and then it's going to transition into kids and children. And it seems, maybe at the beginning, like these are separate issues. And part of what I hope to do today is to just show how really connected they are. And it's amazing. We went to a conference a couple of years ago and were introduced to an artist who has taken some of the Psalms and put them to music. And so instead of me just reading Psalm 127 today, I want you to follow along in your Bible and we're going to listen as someone sings this Psalm. So he, he sings, he uses the ESV, which is what I preach from generally anyway. So if you've got a, a version that's a little different, his phrasing in the song may be a little different as well. But Psalm 127, follow along as we listen, and then we'll pray when the song is through.
If you're interested in hearing more of the Psalms, put the music like that. That's a, the band is called The Corner Room, and you can find their music on iTunes and Google Play and all that stuff. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that this, this Psalm reminds us that, boy, we can anxiously work hard and it all be for naught if you're not in it. And so may that impact, Lord, not just how we work, but how we parent. Uh, and those of us who aren't parents here, uh, who aren't dads here today, Lord, um, maybe we will we'll be a parent one day, but Lord, even if we're not, help us to see how as our Heavenly Father, you love us in these same ways. You watch for us in these same ways. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there are some some cool things happening in these verses. And let's just take them as they come. In verse 1, you heard it was the, the chorus of that song we just listened to, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Some of you have built your own home, and you recognize building a house is no small task. Is it? I think of the Browns building their home. You guys literally built a lot of your house, and it's not a small thing. It starts with a lot of planning. It starts with a lot of saving. And then when you get to the work, it's a lot of work. It's expensive, and it's expensive because there's a lot of labor involved with it. I know this is just kind of understating it, but to create a house where there was just an empty field is a big job. It's huge. It's monumental, in fact. Creating something like that is difficult. There's a, a, a cost to it. Notice in verse 1, at the beginning there, when it talks about building, it doesn't say that building a house is a bad thing or a bad idea. That's not what it says. It's a good thing. He just It just says that if you build a house on your own without the Lord, you do it in vain. You build in vain. If God is not the one building the house, then all your work and all your creating is for naught. It's for nothing. It's in vain. Likewise, the end of verse 1 says that if the Lord isn't the one watching over the city, then all of the work the watchman does to protect the city is wasted. It's in vain. So the watchman analogy is less familiar to us than the building of a house thing. Uh, so... The watchman was posted, usually on the wall of a city, multiple watchmen, depending on how big the city was, and their job, especially at night, was, can you guess what their job was to do? To watch, right? Their job was to watch to make sure that there wasn't a threat coming against the city, people weren't coming in that shouldn't be coming in, if people were leaving, they would take note of these things. Uh, if something bad were to happen... During the night when you were supposed to be watching, well, guess who got blamed for it? You did. Because you were supposed to be watching. You were the watchman. If you fell asleep and people got hurt, you'd be in trouble. You'd be to blame. Their job was to stay awake and to protect the city. That's what a watchman's job was to do. And again, notice it doesn't say that a watchman was a bad thing. It doesn't say that a watchman shouldn't watch. Their job was important. It just says that if the Lord isn't also watching, it doesn't matter what the watchman sees 
or how long they stay awake or what they do at all. If the Lord isn't in it, it's in vain. The watchman's work in protecting the city is for naught if the Lord isn't watching it too. So whether you're building something or whether you're protecting something, if the Lord isn't driving it, if the Lord isn't over it, in fact, if the Lord isn't in it, we're wasting our time. It's in vain, it says. This, I think, should take our minds back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, right? You guys are familiar with that story. After the flood, the people got together and they said, hey, let's build this giant tower. And what was the purpose of the tower? To make a name for ourselves, it says. To be big, to be important, to forget God. In fact, this was in direct rebellion to God. They didn't want his oversight. They didn't want him to build their house or to watch over them at all. And so in the end, all of their effort was in vain. Even all of their ingenuity, the Bible says in Genesis 11, in their ingenuity, they figured out how to bake bricks in order to be sturdy enough to build these giant towers. And even though they were creative and making something, the Lord wasn't in it. And it was in vain. So I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. We should be building. We should be watching. But we do it in vain if we have no interest in joining with the Lord in what he is doing in those things already. Now, verses 3 through 5, they connect to these verses. I think from this child care angle... And it's just, to sum it up, it's this. If we have no interest in what the Lord is doing in our kids' lives, then all of our efforts in parenting amount to nothing, to very, very little, if anything. And so here's, I think, the main thrust of all of Psalm 127, and it's this. God leads the charge in creating, preserving, and in parenting. Building a house, watching over a city, and in raising up kids, God leads the charge in those things. Or He should. Now, don't get me wrong. We have work and responsibility. Fathers, you have a responsibility in your family. This verse does, these verses do not take that away from you. We have a responsibility in our families, but if we intend to go it alone and ignore God's oversight, then our efforts don't amount to anything in the end. Now, it uses a certain phrase three times in the first few verses, in vain. This is a big deal. We have to understand what this is talking about. And it's connecting. In verse 2, it says, It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So rising up early and going late to rest are, are pretty clear. You work all day long. Like you get up early to go in and do your job. You stay out late doing your job. To be clear, Solomon is not promoting laziness. He's not saying that these in themselves are bad things. Okay, there, if you read through the Proverbs that Solomon wrote, there are lots of Proverbs that talk about not being a sluggard. Uh, in, in fact, it's quite the opposite of laziness. Before Adam and Eve's sin in the garden... What did God tell them to do? To work, to tend the garden, care for it. That was work. That was before sin ever entered the world. So work isn't a bad thing. 
God's not telling us as dads and as parents and as builders and watchers not to do those things. The problem is sometimes how we do those things. You know what I mean? How we work, how we parent. Is God involved? Is there space for God? Or does our work feel like this text says, eating the bread of anxious toil? Is that how our work feels? This is a way of describing how to or how not to build and watch. Those things go back up to that. Are we building in anxious toil? Are we watching anxiously? Anxious toil in the Hebrew has this sense of a heavy burden, a big load, being stressed, being pressured, Now, there's no question that work that's described like that is a negative thing. Eating the bread of anxious toil, that's not a positive thing in the text here. That's not what Solomon wants. It's not what God wants. It's clear that God doesn't want work to feel that way. When we're building, when we're watching, it shouldn't be like eating the bread of anxious toil. That's how not to describe the work that we have. And the reason why this doesn't describe it, the reason why this isn't the kind of work that God wants for us is there at the end of verse 2, because he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives sleep. Uh, Several weeks ago, I mentioned those 3 a.m. mornings when you just, you're woken up and sleep evades you and how difficult that can be. You all know that. Sometimes we get up early and we stay out late for our job. But you know what? Even if we do those things, if we're working as God would say, we don't do them like eating the bread of anxious toil. We don't do them pressured and burdened and heavy laden. That's not what God wants for his beloved. Now, sleep itself is not a negative or a positive thing either because here it's it's definitely a positive thing. This is a gift of God. He gives to his beloved sleep or rest or peace. It's a gift God gives people who trust Him. Those of us who may struggle sometimes to get to sleep or to stay asleep know how precious of a thing sleep is. Solomon says in Proverbs 20 verse 13 that you shouldn't love sleep in laziness lest you come into poverty, he says. So sleep is it's not intrinsically either evil or good, Just kind of how you use it, if you will. There's a balance between rest and work that seems to be the really, really difficult thing for us to strike, isn't it? Well, this phrase, he gives to his beloved sleep, should set our minds right about how we work and how we protect and how we preserve our working and our watching shouldn't be driven by anxious toil, but out of the love of God or be driven by the love of God. His beloved, he gives to his beloved sleep. We work knowing that we have that as a reward from God because he loves us. We're his beloved. Now, if you don't understand how a person can work and still have joy and still have the rest of the Lord at the same time, then you haven't worked with Rusty Simmons or Liz Cannon or Mark Dorsey or Jason Hamilton 
or any other number of people. You work with people like that, and even though you might be sweating and just working hard, there's still a joy. It's still a rest. That's, that's what God wants for his people. Hard work and rest don't have to be at odds with one another, but they become enemies quickly when we approach either without an understanding of the love of God. We need to recognize that God is already working and God is already watching. Because if he's not, then all of our working and all of our watching are in vain. If God doesn't build the house or watch the city, then we're wasting our time. But if God is watching and if God is building, then all of our efforts in doing those things his way are not wasted. They're not in vain. And if we know that God is building and watching, then when we do those things with the understanding of rest and being his beloved, we're not going to do them like eating the bread of anxious toil at all. We're going we're gonna to do our work restfully with peace and with joy. We can lie our heads down on our pillows at night and rest because the bulk of the building and the watching, guess what? They don't fall on your shoulders. That's how we sleep at night. We don't bear the weight of the world because God has already taken that burden. And in its place... He gives his beloved a different kind of gift, a different burden that is light. There's still work to be done. There's still a burden there. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 29, take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Because his burden is easy. His yoke is light. So there's still a yoke that we have. There's still a burden. There's still work that we do, but we don't do it like eating the bread of anxious toil. We do it in rest. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Rest for your soul. Rest, that sounds really appealing. It's only when our work is done in response to God's work that work works. Did you you stick with me through all of that? Say it again. It's only when our work is done in response to God's work that work works. Let me say it a different way. It's only when our watch care is done in response to God's watch care that watching works out. It's only when we do work in response to what God is already doing that our work works, is good, is purposeful, is successful. Because our efforts are in vain if we don't trust that God is already working and join Him in what He is doing. This goes for work. This goes for protecting. And I think, verses 3 through 5, they connect in that it goes for parenting too. Verses 3 through 5, let me read them again. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. It's honestly a it's, it's honestly disturbing that I have to even point this out, but verse 3 makes it very abundantly clear that children are not a problem. 
that children are not an inconvenience and they're not punishment. Verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a blessing. They're a gift. Uh, Parents, there are certainly times when we look at our child and don't see them as a blessing. That's reality. That's our sin in nature. The way that they're behaving and the way that we respond aren't always up to God's standards. And yet we can know that and recognize our faults in that and still see children as a gift. Charles Spurgeon said, Where society is rightly ordered, children are regarded, not as an encumbrance or a nuisance, but as an inheritance, and they're received not with regret, but as a reward. Christians, we can't, and I don't think we should, expect a culture who pushes God away to completely embrace his good gifts of kids. That's an unreal expectation that we would have. But even though the world might not recognize or cherish God's gift of children, as Christians, we better. Life is precious. Children should be cherished. Children of every skin color, every nation, every ethnicity, every culture, of every special need and uniqueness. They're a gift of God. And each one of them is worthy of love and care and affection. We should, as Christians, believe this truth, not just in theory, but in practice, by what our time goes to, by what our money goes to, by what our energy is spent on. If we believe that each child is made with a purpose and in the image of God, then there are no accidents and none born unworthy of love and care, if we don't value life properly, then we really should just stop calling ourselves Christians. Verse 3. Children are an inheritance, a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb, a reward. So children come from the womb of the mother, as a reward for the parents, but where did the child really come from? Who gave them as a gift? From the Lord. Children are a gift from the, from the womb, from the Lord. So it looks like kids are a product of the marriage union between a husband and a wife, but it's really the Lord who gives children as gifts. It's really the Lord who builds the house. It's really the Lord who watches over the city. And again, if we're being real, we're going we're gonna to say as parents that this is hard to believe some days. It's hard to put into practice. In fact, we may have to remind our spouses of one another when we're frustrated and on our last thread of sanity, children are a reward. They're a blessing. They don't always feel that way, but they are a blessing. We have to take them here. We have to feed them 
that. We have to change their diaper. We have to help them. We have to teach them. We have to guide them. We have to correct them. We do all of these things as parents in the busyness and the frustrations of our own lives and of our own sin nature can kind of start to settle in like a fog sometimes that makes it really unclear what the truth is about kids, that they really are a reward, that they really are a blessing, that they really do come as a gift from God. They're not a nuisance. They're not an inconvenience or a problem. Parenthood is a responsibility in the end that none of us are ready for. If you're waiting to have kids, married couples, until you're ready, you'll never have kids. Because <laughs> you're never ready. We're never ready as we think we will be. And yet, kids are still a blessing from the Lord. They're a reward from God. So if we stick with the analogy that Solomon's already using, there's never a shortage of building into our kids' lives, of watching our kids as we teach and train our kids and then demonstrate how to live, we're doing the work of building. And as we preserve and protect and care for our kids, we're doing the work of watching. But God is already building and God is already watching our kids because they are His gifts. He's already working in our kids because they're His as parents, we're called to join with what the Lord is already doing. Otherwise, it's just going to seem, parenting is just going to seem constantly like eating the bread of anxious toil. No matter how hard we work, it'll be in vain. So moms, and especially dads on this Father's Day, some questions to think through. Do you know what God is doing in the lives of your kids? Do you know? what God is doing in their lives. How's he building them? How's he watching them? How can you join him in that? It's real easy to get sidetracked with other things and put parenting on the shelf and just stick our kids in front of a TV, in front of a phone or a tablet, and to let them raise our kids. And that would be a mistake. Verse 4. Psalm 127, verse 4, says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And this is where it starts to really appeal to dads, okay? Arrows in the hand of a warrior. And I thought of this question this week as I was reading and studying this. Why are children like arrows and not like a sword or a shield or a spear? Aren't those generally better weapons in combat? Why an arrow? Why are they arrows? And I think, I think the answer is this. Arrows go where a warrior can't. See what I'm saying? Arrows go where the archer can't. So as, as a, a warrior pulls back the bow and shoots the arrow, it goes a place he may never go. So, I think this, this is the same thing in regards to parenting. Dads, moms, your kids as arrows 
go to places you may never go. And I don't mean physically necessarily, although some of them will go to places we'll never tread. But maybe spiritually, they go where we can't. God has given us gifts that go where we won't, further into the future than our lives will take us. Our kids, as arrows, fly further than our lives do. They go beyond us. So except for in the case of you know some kind of tragedy, our children will live longer than us. They'll outlive us. Arrows reach further than the warrior himself can go. But I think the analogy goes a little bit deeper. How do I know that my arrow is going to fly straight? I've never made my own arrow. Has anybody made their own arrow before? <coughs> Have you, Josh? Paul? Uh, not an easy task, I'm guessing. Um, you have to make sure that you start with a stick that works for that, that you can get straight. You have to whittle, you have to carve, you have to maybe start over in, in that regard in some ways. But how do I know that my arrow is going to fly straight and true? Well, generally, if you're making your own, it's because you shaped it yourself that way. You whittled it. All those rough parts or the crooked sections, you've trimmed them down to fly straight. To make it fly precisely where you're aiming. As dads, as parents, isn't this an analogy of what we do in our kids' lives? We whittle some of those things away. Those rough parts where they're turning from the path that you know God would have for them. And we whittle that away and we correct it and we bring it back. So that way when we pull that arrow back, we know that it's going to fly straight where we point it. And here's, I think, where the analogy goes even one step more. Especially dads today. Where are you pointing that arrow? It may be straight and true, but it's still being pointed at the hand of the warrior. And dads, if you're that warrior, where are you pointing your arrow? For not pointing it at the target, at the bullseye, at the specific place that we want it to go, then it doesn't matter how straight and true it is. It's going to fly crooked. It's going to go somewhere it shouldn't be. So dads, parents even, we have to point our arrows at the things that matter. We've got to point our kids at stuff that lasts towards truth, towards love, towards holiness. And as, er as warriors, our arrows go where we can't, so we must be sure we're aiming them at the right things. Surely this means that we ourselves have to be pointed at those things first, right? We have to be aiming our own lives at truth and love and holiness one day, if the Lord allows us to see such things, we will watch our arrows going straighter and further and hitting the mark more than we ever thought possible. But you know what? It won't be because you were such an awesome dad. It won't be because you whittled them perfectly and you smoothed them out or because your aim was just right, but because your children are God's gifts to you and he is already being the decisive influence in their lives. He is the one watching 
He is the one building, and we join him in that effort. Dads, if your kids fly the direction that your life is pointed, where would they go? Where would they fly? It's no surprise then, I think, that verse 5 says that a father or parents are blessed when they have a quiver full of arrows, of kids. Lots of children who are all being shaped and aimed at godliness go out and pierce the darkness in ways that parents never alone could accomplish. What a joyful thought for Christian parents that God would use our faithful instruction and our faithful correction and our faithful guidance and efforts. He'll use those things to carry the gospel further than he would ever use us alone. So, Christian moms and dads, our goal as parents, and maybe you don't have kids yet, but you need to understand that our goal as parents is not just to raise good kids who follow the speed limit, stay out of trouble, are hard workers. Now, those are good things. Those aren't bad things. But our goal as parents, our job is to teach and to train and disciple our kids to be lovers and livers of the gospel. And I don't don't mean liver like in your body. I mean living out. To teach and train and disciple our kids to be lovers of the gospel and livers of the gospel. Now you'll never hear that a different way. I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me point out that this isn't teaching that only parents with a whole gaggle dozen of kids are only the parents who are blessed. The blessing of the Lord is seen in our lives in any number of ways. And um, if you think of some biblical characters, uh, we know that they didn't all have kids of their own. And yet we're incredibly blessed of the Lord. Jesus being one. I think that uh, this means that when a dad has kids who are being shaped and honed into lovers of God, no matter how many they have, it's a wonderful thing. And even if adults in the church don't have kids of their own, when they have a hand in teaching and training and guiding others to live and love the gospel, It's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing that God gives. So wonderful, I think, in fact, that the end of verse 5 gets at the point that it's so wonderful that nobody wants to mess with the dad of these kids. Nobody wants to mess with dear old dad. Look at the end of verse 5. Well, I'll just read the whole thing. Blessed is the man who who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. So the gate in this time was a place where judicial proceedings took place, right? So if, if we had a dispute together, we would go to the gates of the city and a judge there would help us to get to the heart of the matter and resolve it. And so in, I think in the scenario that Solomon has in mind here, somebody has brought an accusation against dad, 
But the children that he has raised, the quiver full of them, are there to come to his defense. To be a witness in his defense that no one could speak evil of him. But not only that, but I think that these children have been so trained and so cared for and loved and taught that their own lives prove that their father doesn't need to be ashamed. That no one can bring an accusation against him because even the lifestyle of their kids points to a good father. Even if an enemy accuses, this father can point to the character of his own kids as a defense. So being Father's Day, let me share a few closing thoughts for you fellow dads in the room. And if you're not a dad, you can listen to. Number one, we need fathers who protect. Now, I, I don't mean that you hit the gym and you tattoo your body and you get intimidating so that you can protect your family. Maybe not the tattoo or muscle thing, but there's, a, there's an aspect of protecting that's wrapped up in, I think, what God has designed fathers and husbands to be in their families. That's certainly a part of this. But you know what? Having kids in itself doesn't lessen the grip that sin has on you as a dad where you just suddenly forget about everything else and then focus completely on your kids and their needs and their training. Having kids itself doesn't just lessen that grip. In fact, in some ways, it just makes it a lot harder. It intensifies our own sin. They're exposed, sometimes even amplified, and need to be repented of. And so, fathers, we need to be dads who protect, number one, who protect our own heart from the dangers of sin. But number two, we need to protect our kids. We need to be building them. We need to be watching them. We wouldn't expect somebody else to come in and protect our family or provide for our family. We certainly shouldn't expect the government to do that sort of thing. That's the husband's job. Dad, that's our job, to provide for our family, to protect our family. Practically speaking, Dads protect their kids by knowing what dangers are out there. Dads, we live in a time where there's all kinds of dangers that you didn't have growing up probably. Just the whole evolution of the smartphone industry has made it such a danger for our kids. And so when I say, when I say we have to protect our kids from the dangers out there, I don't, I don't mean spiders and snakes and flat tires and stuff like that. I mean, we need to protect them from spiritual soul danger, like stuff that can can end their eternity with the Lord. Like, it's just a serious thing. So practically speaking, what apps are on your kids' phones? Um, what What do your kids spend their time doing, reading, listening to, watching? Who are they talking to on the phone, texting, online? We need to be aware of what's going on in our kids' lives. 
We need to be able to guide them through these things. Dads, we have to be proactive in this. Your teenager or preteen is probably not going to come to you and tell you about a bad app that their friends are using. Maybe they will. I hope that they would. Kids, you should do that and avoid those apps, avoid those things. But most of the time, we're going to need to be proactive in guarding and protecting our children. We have to evaluate these things first. And, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things as a kid is for them to hear their parents tell them to do something, but then watch their parents do something else, right? Practice what you preach. Dads, practice what you preach. If you tell your kids you shouldn't watch that kind of a movie, don't you don't watch that movie, right? I get that there are themes that aren't necessarily bad that you don't want your kids to see, but there's a lot of stuff that comes into our homes probably that as dads and as moms, we probably just shouldn't watch ourselves. Practice what we preach. Number two, we need fathers who prepare. I don't mean prepare for fatherhood, because like I said, you're never really prepared. What I mean is, are you preparing your kids for life without you? And I don't necessarily mean you dying either. Are you preparing your kids to when they graduate and maybe go off to college or go off into the workforce or get their own apartment and are on their own, are they prepared to walk with Christ just as much there as when you're dragging them to church? See what I mean? We need dads who prepare. So many times we get focused on, well, I got to, I want my kid to get a good education so that they can get a high paying job so that they can have a nice car and they can provide for their family and do these things. And guys, being prepared in that way isn't necessarily wrong. It can be if it negates our spiritual training. But that's not what I'm saying to prepare our kids for. Are you preparing your child to be a light in the dark world? That's where they're walking into. And they're only under your umbrella for so long. The church aids in this. The church comes alongside moms and dads. And that's why we do things like Awana and youth group. That's why we lead mission trips like to Shining Light and involve teens and kids. It's why we have evangelism training and we teach It's so that we can help you parents. We can champion you moms and dads. Because that's not the church's design. That's yours. God has given your children to you as the primary disciplers of them. You train and you teach and you lead. And the church assists you in that. We love you and we want to champion you and lift you up into doing those things better. You, especially dads, God's given us the task of leading our families. It's not one we take lightly. Now, if you're hearing this today, especially as a dad, and you're like me, thinking about all the times that you've blown it, more than the times when you've got it right, don't lose heart. I don't mean don't try harder. I just mean don't lose heart. Talk with another dad in the room today. Maybe an older one who's got some more experience. Their kids are more grown. Talk with another dad. Hold each other accountable. 
in your parenting. Your spiritual lives will be involved in that, no doubt. Ask other dads, hey, we've got kids that are similar ages. How are you protecting them? What what kinds of things are you doing? Not to just check in and see if they're doing something, but because maybe you need to do something else. Maybe you need to do what they're doing, right? So we, we train and we help one another, dads. We sharpen each other in this task. What tools are they using to prevent stuff coming in their house that shouldn't be coming in the house? On the phones, it shouldn't be coming on the phones. How are they preparing their children spiritually? Maybe that's something you need to do and you can encourage one another in doing that. Remember, don't lose heart. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. So we still have ground to plow. If the yoke is on us, we still have ground to plow, but it's not like eating the bread of anxious toil. It's a restful work because God is in it. Number three, lastly. So we need fathers who protect. We need fathers who prepare. And probably more important than any of them, we need fathers who pray. This really is where we need to start and continue in prayer. If children are a blessing, we just found out that they are indeed, then we should thank God for them. Even immediately after we've had to discipline them when it's not easy to do. But it will remind us that they don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord who is already watching and building. And if we're really as limited as we think we are, and I think most of us dads would admit that today, if we're really as limited as we think we are, then we have to ask God for help. Our own plans, our own desires, and the lies of the enemy, all of these things cause us to treat children in ways that the Lord really cautions us against with apathy or being domineering. But a father dedicated to praying for their children, thanking God for them, I think will be saved from continuing in those things. So here's some reflective questions, Dad. They're going to be hard to hear because they're hard for me to ask because I ask them to myself as well. Dads, how often do you pray for your kids? How often do you pray with your kids? Do you pray with them about their future? Do you pray with them about their worries and fears? Do you pray with them about their friends and what kind of friends to have, about their schoolwork, about their lives? Dads, how often do you ask for forgiveness when you've sinned against one of them? Probably the most convicting question is this dads how often do your kids see and hear you pray I'm, I'm not sure who said it i think that it rings true in a lot of ways here as well but these sorts of things are more often caught than taught you know what i mean caught in the sense of they see us doing it rather than us teaching them and saying it Now, thankfully, 
Fatherhood is full of grace. Thankfully, the Lord is building and protecting and working and going before us in our parenting. Dads, we trust the Lord with the paths of our children, even when they don't go the way that we like. We trust in the Lord. And perhaps the thing that we should be most thankful for to the Christian who has been adopted into his family is that God is the perfect father. He's completely firm yet patient. He's totally just yet he's gentle. He's perfect but he's compassionate in our failings. So we thank God for fathers who demonstrate these characteristics, the characteristics of God. We thank Him for our fathers who do that often, but we recognize that dads are flawed. Earthly fathers are flawed. So whether we have a great and fantastic and praiseworthy earthly dad or not, God as our Heavenly Father is calling many to be sons and daughters. And if he's calling you, don't wait. He's ready to welcome you in, to adopt you and graft you into the family, not as a second-rate citizen, not as a second-rate kid, but as a full-fledged son or daughter. And he's calling to you today. Answer him in faith. So, Dad... I want to leave you with prayer that Paul prays. And you can turn here if you want. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul prayed this for the church at Ephesus. Chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit, His Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Even when our parenting doesn't go as planned, even when our kids don't respond to truth in the way that we would hope for them. We continue to trust in what this verse says. That God is able to do more abundantly than all we could ask or think. We still trust that in our kids' lives. We still watch. We still build. We still, like an arrow, point them to Christ Not just in our words and our teaching, but in our own lives, in our own example. And we demonstrate a life that is given over to the Lord in surrender. Let's pray.
Lord, as a father, I am painfully aware of where I fall short in these things. And I know that's not just for fathers. Moms out here are sitting down, probably feeling very similar things. And yet, Lord, we know that there's hope in parenting. These kids are a gift. Despite the difficulties that come with raising them and training them, they are a gift that has come from you. And because of that, we know that you care about them, how they're trained, how they're cared for. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach dads in the room how to protect and prepare and pray for our kids better. Lord, help us to recognize that we have such an impact in their lives. Not one, Lord, that trumps everything else necessarily, Lord, but one that makes an impact for their entire lives. Lord, I pray as dads that we would be so changed by your love that our kids see Jesus in us. Lord, give us grace where we've fallen short. Give us steadfastness to pick it back up and to run towards the goal. All the arrows that you've given us in our quiver, Lord, that we would hone and whittle and smooth and that we would point directly at you. Thank you for Christ. In him, we have hope that no matter what happens, he can, you can do more than all we might even think or ask. And so we give our children to you today. No matter the age, no matter what's going on in their lives, Lord, we again surrender them to you, knowing that you care for them so much better. Help us perseverance in the work that you've called us to do as moms and dads. Pray these things in Christ's name.